Good day everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the GI Startup Podcast. Today, we're going to talk to our first serial entrepreneur in the GI space. We're going to talk to David Hatchwell. David Hatchwell studied mathematics in New York University. After that, he went on to get a master's in computer and information science at Cornell University. And after that, went on to get a master of public health at Harvard University. From there on, David Hatchwell went on to found his first GI startup called Augie. Augie was then acquired by Seed Health, and he went on to found another company called Kiwi Biosciences, which focuses on creating enzymes that can digest FODMAPs to help patients with IBS. Without further ado, let's start our conversation with David Hatchwell. Welcome, David Hatchwell. Thank you for joining us. I'm really excited about this interview today. I want to talk to you about a lot of different things. And I know currently you're all about Kiwi Biosciences and enzymes that can digest FODMAPs. Exciting stuff for sure. But before we talk about that, let's go ahead and take some time to talk about your first company, Algae. Tell us that story. First of all, thanks so much for having me. It's a true pleasure. Uh, Love sharing these stories. I think there's a lot of valuable lessons, in my opinion, in terms of entrepreneurship and specifically entrepreneurship in healthcare. So Augie was actually my first startup. It came out of my graduate work at Cornell University. At the time, I was a graduate student in science with a focus on on health and health technologies. I was very much, it was an, an accident that I started the project because I was looking for a research topic for my graduate work, and I had this conversation with uh, with a gastroenterologist at Wild Cornell School of Medicine. Basically, we're discussing how imprecise and how subjective a lot of the outcomes are in the GI clinic, especially anything regarding symptoms and particularly stool. This happened to be someone that specialized in irritable bowel syndrome. So after that conversation, it sort of hit me that maybe we can use technology to make some of these measurements more precise, more objective, and be better for clinical decision support, really. And so Augie was really born as, as an academic research project. It was The question was, how can we use computer vision to extract clinically relevant information from, from images of stool? And that was graduate work, which then evolved into, after graduation, into its own startup, which after that was acquired by Seed Health in October 2020. But yeah, that was the short version of the story. That is a great story, David. I, I love that story. A couple of points that I'd like to highlight here. And you mentioned, you know, your interaction with that clinician and how that gave birth to the idea that created algae. I think those types of interactions are really, really important. And it's really important for clinicians to engage with other people in the scientific community. It's really important for us to engage with people like you. And I think that that is essential. And that's a really good point that that you made in that story. And then the other really good point was that this was a, a scientific research project, right? It was a grad school project that you had. And you actually had the initiative to transform that into a product that can be used in a market. And I think that that's great initiative. I think that a lot of people out there may not realize that their projects are valuable enough for something like this, or they may not realize how they can take those projects 
into the market space or into the entrepreneurial space. And therefore, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what kind of advice you have for people like that, for grad students, for example, who are working on a project that they believe can be brought into the market or grad students who have the inclination to go into the entrepreneurial space. I think that uh, entrepreneurship is almost counter to anything you learn in, especially in grad school. I think that the, the, the beauty of being trained in some technical discipline, whether as a clinician or, or engineer or scientist, is that you can actually understand how to build these systems and services or products. But at the same time, you're biased towards building rather than understanding whether this can survive financially as a, as a startup, really. And I think that that's the, the, the most difficult thing is that if you want to be a good entrepreneur, you have to almost forget intentionally about a lot of the things that you've learned in class. You have to learn how to be scrappy, learn how to build less and experiment more from a more uh, user-focused or market-focused approach rather than a technological approach. And so I think my, my advice would be try to resist the need for building too much and try to be more strategic in terms of what are the things that you can test with the least amount of resources and the least amount of time that doesn't involve building a technology for it. In a lot of cases, the answer is you can almost test a large majority of products and services you can think of without actually building the technology itself. You can find proxies that are low technology, that are very cheap, that you can build in, a, in an afternoon, in the weekend. And with that, you can actually test the market. In the case of Augie, although we didn't really apply this advice really well, but I'll give you an example. Early on, we were trying to look for databases of stool images, and we couldn't find any. Nothing in the academic world or in the industrial world was available that we could find. And so... Obviously, the average engineer will think, oh, well, let's spend a few months collecting images from anyone that can send this to us, and, and then after that, we can build the thing. Um, what we did basically in a weekend is uh, buy a bunch of Play-Doh and make samples of different Bristol types in a 3D-printed toilet in Cornell's uh, Maker Lab, which took a weekend. In a matter of hours, we trained uh, an algorithm to work on that, and we had a proof of concept in a weekend, almost $50 in Play-Doh and free printed toilet. Yeah, I'm not kidding. And, and, and that was good because then we could test the market with a product in mind that we could show clinicians to really understand whether this was valuable from a clinical perspective. We failed later on in really finding who our customer was and what was the large market for us. That we failed at. But that early decision of being really scrappy and doing something quick and, and dirty, if you will, was I think a, a very good one in retrospect. That's that's an amazing story, and I think I think we can connect on a personal level here because outside of uh, gastroenterologists, I've never heard of somebody else playing with poop for a living. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, creating poop models that sounds that sounds amazing, amazing work. To be honest, that's a great story. Yeah, we we did uh, thousands of samples. <laughs> I think uh, something like over over thirty thousand samples. I'm not kidding. Like it's just a. Uh, a lot of images that we wanted to use. So a lot of hours in a weekend, but um, really worth it. You know, that's a great example of using the resources that you have available to create something great. And we always talk about the lean entrepreneur, right? And a lean startup. And I think that's exactly what we mean. This is the type of attitude that you need if you have a great idea in order to get buy-in from the people around you, because 
A lot of people will think that a great idea by itself is enough, but that's not really true. You need to convince people around you. And most of the time, they won't be convinced with just an idea. They need to see something. And you don't have to necessarily spend a lot of money to create that thing. So just what you guys did with a 3D printed toilet and a few dollars worth of Play-Doh, you were able to make a minimally viable product or, or a proof of concept, as, to say the least. And I think that is part of the reason why you're so successful. Now, to move on, in as brief a way as possible, tell us where is Algae now? What you guys developed? What is it being used at this time for? You know, we were uh, earlier when the, basically at the beginning of the pandemic, we had just run a number of experiments with Augie and what Augie's final form was, um, it was a consumer tool that allowed any patient to set up their own N of one randomized clinical trial, really to understand the relationship, hopefully causal relationship between lifestyle interventions, dietary interventions, just a very broad range of things and its impact in motility as seen by the Bristol scale, which was what Augie was doing. And, you know, we came to a realization that it was going to be very difficult to build a consumer-facing tool successfully. From a behavioral perspective, I think that our customers at the time were seeing a lot of value in those experiments, but they wouldn't do those for a very long time. They would do one or two experiments and be done with it, and that would be maybe a month of usage. And at that time, we realized, you know, maybe we've evaluated everything from pharma to contract research to uh, decentralized trials to uh, clinical decision support. We had really tried to study every single possible customer. And we just, we landed on the consumer as the final one. And we just, we tested that very carefully. It just wasn't clear that that was going to work in the long run. Um, so that time we, we decided to, to basically sell Augie. We had a number of offers on the table and we decided to take one uh, from Seed Health, which was a microbial sciences company. We partnered with them before. We knew the team very well and we knew Ara, the, the co-CEO of the company, well. And um, it's just, it was a very, very good fit from an acquisition perspective. After handing out the technology, Seed is primarily using right now Augie for um, a clinical trial they have at uh, Beth Israel, at uh, one of the Harvard teaching hospitals with Tony Lembo. So it's an IBS trial for their one of their products. I think they also have other plans to use the, the same algorithm for, for other applications, uh, more on the consumer side of things, but they use it more as a tool for multiple purposes, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess it started out as an academic research project and now it's kind of continuing mostly in that direction now until they figure out better uses for it on a consumer side. That's a that's an incredible story, and I, I could talk about this for hours. So let's <laughs> hang the algae hat for a little bit and move sure. on to Kiwi Biosciences. So yeah. tell us about that. Tell us the story of that and what you guys are doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, after the acquisition, I still had the the thirst of entrepreneurship, and I started looking for for new products to work on. Really, joining platforms where I could find other individuals that are looking to to build something uh, that matters. And I took a very disciplined approach to that. I wanted to evaluate ideas in something like two to four weeks each. And I evaluated something like four ideas at the beginning of the year. One of those ideas, which is obviously Kiwi, was uh, an idea that my co-founder currently, Angie Liu, came up with, which is to target fermentable fibers that cause a lot of trouble, especially for folks with sensitive guts, directly uh, with enzymes instead of by restricting uh, foods or by 
having a very restricted lifestyle, almost like an impossible diet, really. And of course, I'm talking about something called FODMAPs, which I'm sure you've heard, uh, Mara, but uh, <laughs> FODMAPs are these plants that we eat. They have sugars and fibers of all kinds. And some of these uh, fibers that are non-digestible will tend to ferment or uh, bring a lot of water into the gut and cause a lot of trouble. And we are all sensitive to them one way or another, but people with irritable bowel syndrome, other functional GI disorders, and, and even on the inflammatory side as well, have a lot of trouble with these fermentable fibers. And what we're doing at Kiwi is we're essentially developing enzymes, uh, patent-pending enzymes, to address them directly. We have our first product, which is an enzyme that degrades fructan, or specifically inulin, which is the type of fructooligosaccharide that is uh, arguably the biggest troublemaker in foods like garlic, onion, wheat, banana, Brussels sprouts, like half of the vegetables you can imagine. And we've been selling that product since May this year, and it's been um, an amazing journey just to see how folks who have been avoiding these foods for sometimes decades are not able to eat them without the fear of you know, having to run to the bathroom immediately or having to spend an entire night in the bathroom. So that is the exciting part with the current product. We have a pipeline of other products, including a polyol degrading enzymes for sorbitol and mannitol, one of the other uh, fermentable uh, carbohydrates that is also very problematic, especially in fruits like apple, avocado, and even mushrooms as well. And we have more projects down the line, but you know that's that's sort of our core is really these these enzymes, and we are figuring out how to embed them in in different kinds of products, starting with a dietary supplement, which is the fastest way we can go to market, but also trying to take that to a therapeutic level and even embedding that into foods themselves. That's the overview. We want to make food painless for as many people as possible. And that's a great mission statement right there. We want to make food painless for as many people as possible. I love that. And David, I like what you said when you described how you started your new endeavor or your new company with your co-founder. You mentioned how you went on different platform to try and assess and, and find the best idea or the best next idea. And I, I really love that. I think that there should be a lot of research that goes into these things and looks like you've done your part, you've done your due diligence. So congratulations. I think that that's really, really a great thing. And then I remember when you told me about this the first time, I remember thinking to myself that, you know, this is really amazing because it's not altogether new, right? We've done this before. We make lactase for patients with lactose intolerance and we make lipases and proteases for patients with pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. So we have made enzymes for problematic foods in the past, and it's just so striking that this has not been done before. It is. I, I agree with you. It's like it's, it's surprising that it hasn't happened before because we've had the beta-galactosidase for 50 years. We've had alpha-galactosidase so for the, for the galactoligosaccharides for something like 40 years. And all the pancreatic enzymes, the lipases, the amylases, the proteases that have existed also for, for decades, and yet nothing else has happened there. The one other thing I wanted to add as well is that in addition to identifying the enzymes, we've spent a lot of time trying to understand how those enzymes interface with the body and with the food that we eat, uh, really understanding what is the optimal acidity profile, temperature profile, um, and what is the right place for these enzymes to be active? Because of that, our product right now is a powder meant to be sprinkled directly onto food rather than a pill. We've tested actually putting our product in a, in a capsule. It doesn't work. 
it doesn't work because the, the window of time for the enzymes to be active, uh, the acidity uh, levels that they need to is, is in postprandial stomach. And when, when we've tried to put this into, say, capsules, even cellulose capsules that will, that will degrade in the stomach, it still shortens the time and the homogenization that the enzymes can have with the food. And so they're not able to access the substrates as quickly as they should to actually be able to be effective. Um, so really, we've put a lot of time and effort into what is the right mode of administration. Right now, we're as a powder. It is experimentally the by far the most effective way of doing it. But we're also working on a chewable uh, that we can talk about a little more because we've figured out a very interesting way to protect the enzymes from proteases in the stomach. So really, really understanding that interface is very important rather than just uh, putting you know one ingredient that you think might work in a capsule and deal with it. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that that extra layer of innovation, which is something that we, we care deeply about. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a great thing that often gets neglected, right? They, people always look at the idea and the value of the idea, and they forget about the delivery of the idea, right? You've created an enzyme that can digest FODMAPs, but that's not the end of the road. You have to take that enzyme and put it in the right place, in the right medium, have it interact with the right ingredients. And that's really a different layer of innovation. So, David, you once told me a story about how you guys tested out this enzyme for the first time. And I think it's a really cool story. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell us that story? Yeah. And, and, you know, it points out to back to what we were discussing earlier, which is this, this idea of being scrappy. One of my trainings was in, in epidemiology and doing my MDH. And, you know, when, when it comes to being scrappy, you have to be, you have to forget about all that <laughs> and kind of put a more pragmatic uh, hat on, if that makes sense. And so in the case of Kiwi, you know, when we have the first enzyme, rather than going into structured properly done clinical trials, if you will, with an academic partner, IRB in place with, you know, all these things that might take months and maybe more than a year to, to accomplish. Rather than doing that, we knew we had a substance that was generally recognized as safe and that we could basically commercialize it without a pre-market approval. So under the FDA, we fall into the dietary ingredient category. And because of that, we don't need that pre-market approval which really gives us a lot of flexibility in what we're doing. And so what we did at the beginning is really we wanted to convince ourselves that it works. So the reason why we know that the powder works better than the, than the, than the capsule, if you will, is because we've experimentally proven that on, on ourselves, on friends and family, just a, a group of very brave guinea pigs, if you will, that uh, we fed very large amounts of fructan in the forms of uh, half a or quarter kilo of shallots, or five fiber one bars, which is incredibly large amounts of fructan. And so that will give, that will trigger symptoms in any healthy human. And we saw very remarkable effects, 75% reduction in flatulence, uh, complete reduction in diarrhea events down from seven diarrhea instances on average. That really gave us the confidence that the product was working, that we could start really gaining commercial traction and then go raise funds and then go through more rigorous uh, clinical validation, which is obviously part of our long-term clinical roadmap. But that sort of initial lean, scrappy mindset, I think is is something that I, if you can, because the substance is safe, I would certainly recommend considering that as a way to not waste time, basically. That's, that, it's... It, you might want to disagree. Happy to have a debate. <laughs> <laughs> I, as a physician, I can't recommend that. Yes, yes, of course. 
But I'll tell you, when you told me that story the first time, it really reminded me of the discovery of H. pylori. Um, I believe it was Barry Marshall who drank that solution and, and got H. pylori and won the Nobel Prize as a result. I don't know if you'll win the Nobel <laughs> Prize so. for this, but think it so. certainly is an interesting way of testing out a new product. Certainly scrappy. Then again, you know, as a physician, I can't recommend that. <laughs> Moving on. David, as an entrepreneur and as an innovator, why don't you tell us how you treat ideas when you run across them? What is the best way to take an idea from the idea stage into the next step? Yeah. Um, a lot of times I see people that are very protective of their ideas at the idea stage. I, I want to highlight that because it's, I think it's the wrong mindset. The idea is worth zero. Um, it doesn't matter how good it is. It's worth zero. And so if you're trying to protect it, if you don't tell people about what you're doing, you won't get the feedback, you won't get the resources that you need. And so I think that, again, it's very counter to the mind, but um, the best thing you can do when you have an idea is to share it as much as you can. Tell everyone around you, the taxi driver, the, <laughs> whoever is in front of you, the waiter, uh, about what you're doing and get as much feeling as possible. Hmm. That's actually quite interesting because I think I've heard it both ways. I think I've heard your point of view is that you need to share your idea with everyone so that you can get the proper feedback. And then I've also heard that you should be very careful who you mention your idea to. And to be honest, I kind of agree with both statements. I think that you should share your idea so that you can get good feedback because at the end of the day, you can't see all angles of a problem. It's very difficult for one person to be able to see through all the angles available. Yeah. However, at the same time, you need to be careful who you share your idea with. And it's funny that I think there's a distinction. I think that most folks on the industry side think along the lines that you mentioned. Mm. However, most people on the academic side tend to have the other point of view and they tend to be kind of secretive yeah. about their ideas and they tend to be super protective. So I, I, I don't know if that's um, the same as your experience, but um, that was, I think, the way that I've seen it. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, David, you know, there are a lot of products out there for patients with IBS. You know, there are things like prebiotics, there are things like IB Guard, peppermint tea. There are a lot of different products available for IBS patients out there. But when I think about Kiwi Biosciences, when I think about Fodzyme, I think more of a, a paradigm shift. I think more of a leap forward in that area. And I want you to explain to us why you think that is. Why should we look at Kiwi Biosciences as a leap in the area of management of IBS? Yeah, this is a good question. And I'm sure you can speak a lot more about the clinical perspective, all the therapeutics and all the treatment pathways that exist for conditions like IBS. The way we see it is that it's, it's almost every time we talk to customers, and this is something we try to do, uh, we offer a call to every single customer that buys Fodzyme. Not everyone takes the call, but whoever wants it, we take it. And almost always the story uh, repeats itself. Someone that was diagnosed with IBS, something that probably took years to get to that point, that has tried you know, the traditional therapeutics for a symptom, has tried dietary interventions, including low FODMAP diet. And you know, IBGARD is peppermint. The, the satisfaction with all those treatments is fairly low. 
ones that are just for the symptoms seem to to be either very expensive and things like linaclotide also is something very expensive. I've, I've heard a number of stories of, of being problematic at the reimbursement level. But most of the time, what seems to happen is that restricting FODMAPs is clinically effective. It's just socially and gastronomically disastrous, right? Because right. yes, you're, you're probably going to be good. Uh, you're still going to have some flares from time to time, but you're still, you're going to have a good control of your, of your symptoms, but you're not going to be able to dine out comfortably. You're going on dates, going with friends, with coworkers, really eating the foods that, that you like. It's incredibly restrictive. And I think we fit in that, in that point where we figure out a way to break the trade-off between FODMAP restriction and lifestyle. And obviously that doesn't cure IBS. That is just another a very important tool to manage symptoms in the long term that makes this a lot more bearable than everything else. We're not a replacement for other things, but we do think that we were a step forward in the FODMAP restriction, which seems to be clinically effective. But now we have a better way to deal with the social and gastronomical dimensions, which uh, we think are important. Wonderful. I love how you put it. You know, you guys are breaking the trade-off between FODMAP restriction and lifestyle. That's really a beautiful thing. Allowing people to circumvent FODMAP restriction, right? You're getting rid of the effect of FODMAPs without really restricting FODMAP. You're still restricting FODMAPs. You have a way more targeted approach, right? So you're not restricting by means of restricting foods. You're targeting the FODMAPs directly, which is what Alan Kligerman, when he developed the alpha and beta galactose days back in the 70s and 80s, had in mind for lactate and vino. We're just trying to take that step forward, which is obviously hopefully for the benefit of everyone. Mm. Okay, David, tell us what are the biggest obstacles that stand in your way right now? And how do you expect those to play out over the next few years? Yeah, I think that starts at every point in time, you have a, a frontier that you need to get past. We have a number of those present and future ones I'm sure will come. One of the most important things right now for us is that we've seen remarkable effectiveness with our customers, but we've also seen a lot of barriers that are not clinical, but rather behavioral to proper usage of the product and therefore success with the product. The product has a little bit of art to taking it. It's not like a pill you take and breakfast or something and you forget about it. There is a little bit of art on how much, and everyone has a slightly different dosage, depending on their sensitivity to FODMAPs. How it's applied on food is very important. We we basically put together a series of instructions, if you will, but in the end, there's a little bit of art to the adequate usage of the product. And I think that what we are struggling right now with, we have a number of initiatives to address this, is really figure out how to get people the right intuition to use the product correctly. And what we've concluded is that, one, people don't read <laughs> for the most part. They are not going to read if you send them a little manual of like, here's how you use it. Um, that doesn't work. We've tried visual, um, visual aids uh, for that. That has been better. But what we are currently exploring doing is basically teaching customers simple biochemistry. So they have the right intuition about how the enzymes work. There's a number of misconceptions that actually exist. I'll give you a few. So one is that all enzymes are the same. That enzymes are not specific to their substrate. And therefore, what is this enzyme? I can buy enzymes at Whole Foods. What, are, what is this different? Why is this different from, from an enzyme at Whole Foods? And of course, it's no one's fault. But obviously, that concept of specificity of the enzymes is, is not 
not it's well, a misconception. No, it's not well um, known. Patients don't know. It's not well known. It's not well known. But I feel like we've learned it in you know in in middle school at some point. Um, but we just forget about it. Right? In, in middle school, do you remember these days, David? Not much. <laughs> and I have a I have a math undergrad, and yet I don't remember calculus <laughs> uh, for the most part. Um, but you know, and we're we're exploring a number of ways of doing this, and I think that demystifying the microscopic world is is one way of going about it. We're experimenting with animations, very realistic animations of what is actually happening at the enzyme level. What are the things to take into account? We are also developing a video game. I'm not kidding. Um, a video game that teaches people about how enzymes work and how specific they are, and how they're also threatened by protease activity in the stomach and things like why it works at a certain pH versus another, why being close to the food gives them more time to work on the substrates, what actually is happening. And we think that if we make that quick, simple, that will give a level of intuition that will help people be more successful using the product rather than us telling 20 different instructions that are, you know, in a passive manner rather than in an active manner. So, you know, the behavioral aspects is something very interesting because you don't think about it, right? You normally have, have a product, you test in the lab, and we've, you know, we've, we've done a, a number of in vitro experiments that uh, successfully and it works beautifully, but how that translates to real world, it's a very different thing. And so I think that the beauty of having a product and selling it directly to consumers gives us that access to them and really have conversations with them. And we learn a lot of things from them. So we've actually learned anecdotally, this is something we're studying at the moment, that how fast people chew might have something to do with the effectiveness. And in our mind, the hypothesis is by accessibility. If you don't chew your food well, you're not making those apodnaps accessible to the enzymes. Whereas if you chew well, you are. And so this is one weird thing that just came from conversations with customers. And we do this intentionally because we learn a ton of things that would be otherwise very hard to understand and improve. Mm. These are really great points. And I think these are really important challenges. Basically learning the mechanistics of the enzyme and learning the ins and outs of using it. Then teaching people about those mechanistics and teaching people how to use it properly. And that can be really challenging, but you guys seem to be doing very well. It sounds like you're learning a lot from your customers. And at the same time, you're also being creative in, in teaching your customers and the patients how to use this product. I've always thought that video games would be a great way to teach new concepts and I am I'm really excited about what's going to come out of that. I really want to see that. So please let me know when it's available because I really want to see how that plays out. All right, David. Whenever I'm talking to entrepreneurs or startups in the health tech field, three questions always come up and those are how does your product benefit patients? How does it benefit physicians and how does it benefit the payer? You know, first and foremost, our priority is patients. So it's important to know how your product is going to benefit patients. And then physicians are usually the folks who are either recommending or even prescribing these treatments to their patients. So it's really important to see how this product benefits them. And then the pair is usually the entity that finances those treatments. And therefore, it's really important to know how it affects them. Now, you guys are 
marketing directly to the consumer so that third part may not be as pertinent, but I'd like to hear your thoughts at least on the first two parts. I will give a comment on the third one as well because it's something we're, we're working on. For patients, for us, and we've seen this so many times firsthand, just talking to them, how they react to using the product, is we're giving them back a lifestyle that they thought was forbidden of being able to just enjoy a meal out or just enjoy the food they'd like to taste. We had this this customer who avoided garlic for something like 10 years, and oh. she did not remember the taste of garlic. She became emotional, and she told me that she actually brushed her teeth something like 20 times because she didn't remember how the garlic sticks to the, to the taste. But she had it and had no symptoms with it. And so that, I think, is very powerful, and, and I think we're just improving quality of life dramatically for something that is not a life-threatening condition, but something that really is an impediment to a more enjoyable lifestyle, really. And also, you know, from a nutritional perspective, restricting foods that contain FODMAPs, there's some parts of the literature that address this and, and point towards malnutrition. I think we, we're, a more, we're a healthier approach. We do have some blind spots. We still don't know what happens if you avoid FODMAPs for 10, 20 years. So the long-term consequences, we're studying this, but at least it's better from a clinical perspective and from quality of life perspective for folks with sensitive guts and also for healthy humans. You know, I don't have IBS, but I use the product at home when we cook with garlic and onion and I avoid the discomfort after the meal. So it still benefits the wider part of the population. How does it benefit the clinicians? We know, for instance, that about 80% of American gastroenterologists will recommend the low FODMAP diet to a recently IBS diagnosis. It's no wonder because it's proven to be clinically effective, but getting someone to comply or adhere to the low FODMAP protocol is close to impossible. So the GI definitely doesn't want to deal with that. The PCP doesn't want to deal with that. So typically it relies on a dietitian to help comply with these diets. It is a burden on, I think, the, the entire healthcare system, uh, at least in this narrow area of IBS, if you will, which is not that narrow. It's a lot of people. And I think we're in some way, if we're successful doing this, we can probably reduce the burden on the healthcare system and maybe open time for more important consultations, more important clinician, uh, clinician dietitian time. That is the extent of you know what we think can be the effect in, at that level. And thirdly, at the payer level, this is something we're currently working on is really exploring if there are feasible reimbursement pathways for a product like ours. Uh, we're looking at, you know, CPT reimbursement codes and the fourth, other ways of making this financially more accessible to, to our customers. Uh, for example, health spending accounts, HSAs and FSAs. So we, we do have one of our projects uh, is really trying to understand what are ways that will reduce the financial burden of this product on the customers that need it to improve lifestyle. So we look at it more from that perspective of like how we can make the product more accessible rather than just how we can shift to, to a different paying system. Hopefully that, that clarifies the three questions. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as a gastroenterologist, IBS patients are some of the most difficult to treat. I can't even imagine how difficult it is for the patient, but it is difficult for me. I get frustrated a lot because we try yeah. and try and try and try and try and the patients continue to suffer, continue to have symptoms. So it, yeah. it would be definitely something incredible if there was something to kind of help fix with that. And then from the payer perspective, my patients with IBS tend to actually utilize healthcare a lot more than they need to. A lot of the times they end up going to the ED with abdominal pain, end up getting CTs that they don't need to get. 
They, some of them even right. like end up staying in the hospital uh, for a day or two or for observation for reasons that they don't need to be in the hospital. We always test them for infections in the stool because they come in with diarrhea and a lot of the urgent care physicians, for example, don't know. Some of the times they end up getting antibiotics in urgent care because they're having diarrhea. So there are a lot of different, different ways in which these patients end up incurring costs themselves but also adding costs to the healthcare industry in general. So anything that can actually help with that would have massive effects uh, in terms of uh, the payer perspective and, and the financial burden um, of IBS. Couldn't agree more. Isn't it like something like 12% of PCP time is IBS patients and 30% of GI time is, is IBS patients? It's really a large use of time. If we can figure out better ways to deviate that traffic to better solutions and have that physician time more accessible to more important, you know, less addressed matters, that's definitely success. I guess that's your value proposition right there, right? You're giving patients back their lifestyle, you're giving physicians back their time, and you're reducing the financial burden of IBS for the payer. That's right. That's a great value proposition, to be honest. All right, moving on to our next topic, and this is going to be focused on physicians. Tell us, how have physicians been helpful to you in developing Q Biosciences? What role have they played in your endeavor? Yeah, absolutely. We're very lucky to have two amazing gastroenterologists as, as advisors, uh, Bill Che and Tom Wallach, two really brilliant gastroenterologists that have really guided us on our clinical roadmap, really trying to understand what are the proof points or what are the blind spots that we should be looking at. To give you an example, we're currently completing a number of in vitro experiments in a simulated gut, partnering with a, the CRO to really test a number of things about our product, but really to validate uh, its efficacy, dosage, and a number of other aspects that we want to va uh, validate. And really that protocol was incredibly helpful to have you know, their, their support in, in, in writing that. We also have a protocol that we're finalizing for um, a human trial with uh, healthy participants this time that we hopefully want to kickstart in beginning of 2022, keep gathering and keep building this portfolio of clinical evidence that we think is important. And all of these steps have been incredibly instrumental to have the, you know, the help of these brave and, and amazing advisors that we have. And I think they do see the value. It's a very simple solution to fairly well understood problem. And how to do that properly, how to make sure that there is no unintended consequences in the long term. So this is something that Tom Wallach, one of our GI advisors mentioned is, you know, what happens if you take Fodzine for 20 years? Are you starving the microbiome in one way or another? What are the unintended consequences that, that we're not looking at? And so this is something that we're immediately looking into, really trying to understand what are the remediations and potential ways to, to make this better. You know, to give you an idea, when you, when you follow the low map diet, protocol says, you know, you're going to go through an elimination, then a reintroduction, and then that's going to be something like three months. And then after that, what do you do after that? <laughs> Are you introducing all those all those FODMAPs back into your diet? But if you identify them as triggers, can you actually do that? Um, you can't really do that. And so really trying to be as clinical as possible in our roadmap is is a priority. And these, these advisors are helping us immensely in doing so. Mm -hmm. That's quite interesting. You know, one of the questions that always pop in my head when I think about this is, what are the caloric consequences, yeah. right? If these are ingredients in our food that we usually don't digest and therefore don't absorb, what starts happening when we start digesting them and absorbing them? Will the caloric index of foods increase? Yeah. Will we start 
getting more calories for the amount of food that we eat. That's certainly something interesting to look into. All right, so to stay on the topic of physicians, what are the types of physicians that you have run into in the entrepreneurial arena? And what kind of advice do you have for physicians out there who are interesting in expanding their horizons and kind of dabbling into the entrepreneurial field or in the health tech industry? Yeah, I've talked to a lot of clinicians over the past few years in, in this entrepreneurial career, and I've seen almost constantly a lot of interest in to be closer to the technology space, really trying to, to understand how to get into it. So I, I do think there is a, a lot of thirst for being more involved. And I think that a lot of startups are, are really interested in having that kind of support. So I do think that creating more venues where those kind of, of connections can happen is really valuable because a lot of times what happens is that we have to, as entrepreneurs, sometimes we just have to cold email a gastroenterologist, hey, uh, we're working on this. What do you think? And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, right? So it's definitely uh, something that I think that there's a few venues out there that, that try to make this easier. So one, for instance, is um, MIT Hacking Medicine. It's a great venue for, it's a hackathon-like kind of venue. Augie actually participated in and we won one of the prizes back in the day. And it was great because it was a venue where you had both clinicians and technologists uh, in the same place, just trying to build solutions together. And, and more than not, you need both of them to actually build something useful. What I perhaps don't know is, because there's always a trade-off, because as a clinician, you're building your clinical career on one side. But if you actually want to be involved in something, you might have to give that up to actually be more involved in the in the perhaps the startup that you're working on. So, you know, I've seen a bit of both. I've seen I've seen some recently graduated MDs that that want to drop their career, medical career, and, and go into the entrepreneurial world, or perhaps keep building their clinical career and be somewhat part time involved in the startup world. I think that that those are tough decisions to make. But just in general, I think that as a clinician. Look for those uh, venues like MIT Hiking Medicine. I'm sure there is tons of other places where you can meet those technologists that are definitely looking to work with you. And whether that's part-time or full-time, I'm sure that can be worked out. You know, I love that. Basically, what you're saying is find avenues to interact with other people who are actually looking for somebody with your expertise and your experience to enrich their endeavor. And at the same time, you need to consider the degree of involvement that you want. Do you want to be a full-time entrepreneur or do you want to continue to have a clinical career and work on other avenues at the same time? That's great advice. All right, David, say that you are a physician yourself. What do you think would distinguish you from other physicians? Oof, I would probably quit my career because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that physicians have this, and, I, and I'm very jealous of this patience and dedication. I would be frustrated every day, and I would just try to build the things that would make me less frustrated. So I don't <laughs> think I would be ever a good physician because I don't have the patience <laughs> to to do those things. You know, I think as entrepreneurs, we always think about how to scale things up not to one person, not to 10, but to thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And so my mind goes to that every time I see a problem. And unfortunately, that's not the right mindset for, <laughs> for a clinician. <laughs> Being scrappy and taking risk is also not the right mindset for a clinician. So when we're talking about a clinician or, a, or an airplane pilot, 
you want something very reliable <laughs> and very, very rigorously trained. In the entrepreneur case, it's very much the opposite. You want a different kind of mindset. Uh, you don't want an expert in something. You want someone that is good at doing many, many things. You want a very T-shaped sort of personality because one day you're doing clinical work, the other day you're dealing with suppliers, the next day you're doing with something legal, the next day you're fundraising or hiring people. So every day is something different. You can't have a specialized mindset and do that. It's very hard. The same person can do both, but I don't think you can do both at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So I think we've pretty much covered everything. I want to just give a lighthearted end to all this. Tell us something about you that huh. um, other people don't know. Uh. <laughs> that people don't know you very um, well, don't know. About. I've always been, um, <laughs> always consider myself very lucky to be able to, to study the different degrees and, and areas that I've studied and to be able to gain exposure in all different domains. I have backgrounds in mathematics, in computer science, in, in epidemiology. I'm, I'm no expert in any of those fields, but being able to think in those in those languages is very helpful to everything I do. When I was a kid, I, uh, my mother is a musician. And when I was a teenager, I started this music band uh, after several years of classical piano and a little bit of guitar. And I started a, basically a pop rock band that ended up signing a, a record deal with Sony <laughs> back in the day. So Whoa, it was a okay. musical period that I think enjoyed a lot. And, you know, the, the beauty of these things, of these experiences is that there's always some level of translational knowledge, right? There's always something you can take from one experience to, to the next one, even if it's from music to entrepreneurship, to, from uh, epidemiology to entrepreneurship from all these domains, there's always some level of first principles that you can acquire that you can use to reason in the next domain. And I think that that is a very valuable thing and something that I consider obviously very lucky to be able to do that because obviously it's not accessible to everyone. But yeah, the musical past is my... That's, that's <laughs> the, amazing. Something where, no, no many people know. Where can yeah. we find that, David? Is it on SoundCloud or <laughs> on YouTube or something? <laughs> now it sounds like I'm plugging my 11-year-old uh, <laughs> band. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's on Spotify. Okay. Um, probably we'll still on Spotify. Um, <laughs> yeah. We'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll find it. All right. That's awesome. Okay. Tell us, what's the funniest story that has happened to you on your journey? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's many, but this one, this one is a pretty good one. So Augie, going back to the Augie days. So the website for Augie was, still is, augie.ai, because it was an AI for GI. So Augie stood for Augmented Gastroenterology. And when we started offering the product to consumers directly, we started advertising it on Facebook and different platforms. And we found this IBS patient group on Facebook that we started talking to. And I don't think they realized that we were seeing that, but they were basically all the group, like many people in the group were having this conversation around us being pirates. And the reason they were thinking that is because when you Google the .ai uh, domain, it's from the Antigua Islands in the Caribbean. Oh. <laughs> and they thought that we were the sketchiest <laughs> thing because the domain we use, which everyone in the tech space uses for artificial intelligence, <laughs> which is originally just an island in the Caribbean. And they thought we were the sketchiest thing because they found that on, I guess, Wikipedia. Um, and that that really was an incredibly fun moment to, to see this their reaction to us being Caribbean pirates of some sort. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm hoping you cleared that up, though. <laughs> uh, we did, we did. We're like, no, no, no. AI is artificial intelligence. In this case. <laughs> That's yeah. fine. But all of these domains are countries. A lot of the domain terminations are countries. So even though they're used for all their acronyms. <laughs> it's a great story. That's a really funny story. All right. I think we're running out of time. So to wrap up, what's the best place for listeners to learn about Kiwi Biosciences? Yeah, you can find um, our parent company. So kiwibiosciences.com is our website and our current product and only product at the moment is Fodzyme, F-O-D-Z-Y-M-E, stands for Fodmaps Enzymes. So it's Fodzyme.com. That's where you can check out and even buy if you're interested. And obviously, if anyone wants to chat more about the clinical, the science behind the product, we're always reachable. We have an email and a phone number that the entire team is connected to. So I encourage everyone that is curious to, to give us a call or shoot us an email. Awesome. Wonderful. All right, David. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. Won't take much more of your time, but if I'll have you on the line for five more minutes after we stop recording. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us the good old five-star rating and share this episode with your colleagues. It'll really help us out in creating additional content. See you all next time.